This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with a pilot who just transitioned from a single-engine Cirrus to a Diamond DA Twin. Oh, and his 14-year-old daughter still wants to be a military pilot. In the news, Southwest Airlines is experimenting with an airport lounge idea. An airport just won a best... (laughs) I can't even say it. An airport just won a best restroom award. A hydrogen-powered internal combustion engine is being developed for general aviation applications. The financial challenges that a municipal airport is facing. And there is good news for general aviation deliveries. We also have another look at dumping jet fuel. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 776 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian. He's from the American Helicopter Museum. Is this thing on? Um, It's been a long time, it seems like. And last week I make it, and everybody else has system problems. Looking forward to getting back into the groove. There we go. Well, Max Trescott is always in the groove. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, an expert on the Cirrus aircraft. Hello, everybody. Just got in from the airport. Sorry, I was five minutes late. Thanks for waiting for me. Well, they don't know that you were late. Only we do. <laughs> now they know that right now they're listening to the late Max Trescott. That's right. That's right. Also with us is our main man, Micah. Pinch hitting for Rob Mark tonight. I just flew in from the airport, and boy, are my arms tired. Yeah, yeah Rob's a little under the weather, um, which uh, that might not be enough to stop him, except he has no voice, really. And uh, that just doesn't work with a podcast. So he's off. Coming up, you are going to hear Brian Coleman, who caught up with Michael Rogers and his daughter, Eva, uh, now, Michael has transitioned from a single-engine Cirrus to a Diamond DA-62 Twin. His daughter, Ava, still aspires to become a military pilot. And that's coming up. But first, we've got the aviation news from the past week. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready from Delaware. Mainly Ready. First, we hear from the street, Southwest Airlines trying massive customer perk. Well, Southwest differs from many of their competitors in, well, in a number of ways, but including how they view airport lounges. Southwest doesn't operate its own airport lounges, but as we learn here, that could be changing. Currently, Southwest sells priority pass access the lounges in three tiers. There's a basic membership that gives you a discount at airport lo- uh, lounges not run by airlines. There's also a 10 free visit tier or, uh, or unlimited visits. A few premium credit cards also offer these priority pass as a perk. Now, of course, United, Delta, American, they operate lounges at most major airports. Access is usually offered to their top-tier loyalty program members and also those with branded credit cards. But Southwest has been testing access to Priority Plus for select top-tier customers. Now, they say that beginning November 22nd, that's this year, 2023, Southwest says, we'll be surprising and delighting a select group of customers with a complimentary Priority Pass membership for a year, which will allow them in two guests per visit access to the Priority Pass Lounge network. So this is something a little different. Southwest offers lots of other interesting things for passengers, uh, but this is a different take on on lounges. You know, if I were in the Priority Pass Lounge and all of a sudden Southwest is offering access, I'd probably be thinking, oh my gosh, you're letting all the riffraff in now. (laughs) Just like any club that would have you, you wouldn't want to join? Exactly. I wouldn't be a member of any club that would have me for a member, not with those kinds of standards. 
clubs have been crowded lately. The um, the lounges have been quite crowded, and we've heard a lot about that. We've talked about that some. There's you know there's different strategies for giving customers access to the, these lounges. It's quite a bit different than it used to be. When I was flying, when I was working, when I was still working before I retired and flying on business trips, especially to the Pacific, to Asia, uh, the lounges were were just lifesavers between between flights. I mean, you get you fly from Chicago to Narita, and you've got to wait a few hours for your next flight on to Beijing or Singapore at the time. And I mean, there was no place you wanted to be other than in the lounge. Well, you know, Brian, many years ago, brought lifetime access uh, to the United Lounge that he takes advantage of and he absolutely loves. And the United Lounges are, are, are pretty good. I've been in a couple of them. But, uh, you know, what United offers if you're flying business class internationally is they have even a more upgraded lounge, the Polaris class lounge. And that's absolutely fabulous. And uh, what many people, you know, listeners who may not have been there, the lounges offer free food, uh, usually a very nice buffet, free drinks, which is really fabulous, you know, I mean, in terms of alcoholic or non, it's all available to you, uh, quiet rooms to study in, and um, even one of the things that I took advantage of is I was traveling from San Francisco, to, from Portland to San Francisco to LHR all in one day, showers, which is just great and really nice service and nice amenities, and uh, it can be a wonderful thing to have. But show me a lounge that you can actually see the flight line and or aircraft uh, to watch. Yes. The London United Lounge, the Newark Polaris Lounge, the San Francisco Polaris Lounge, um, all of them have that. That's another big attractive aspect to, to lounges. Um, just be, at least for those of us who you know, are listening and, and participating in this podcast, I think we like to watch the airplanes Taking off and landing and uh, having having a good view, I think, is important. But not every airport lounge has that, but some of them do. All right, another aspect to airports that maybe affects your um, passenger experience is is the bathrooms, and uh, we see. Wait, wait a wait a minute. Are we are we really going there? We are because this is. Have the, we sunk that low? This turned out to clearly. Be more this podcast has gone into the toilet, right down the crapper. <laughs> there's, there's not more important news than this. No, not to, not this week. There's not. So, okay, carry on. Did you know that there is an annual America's Best Restroom Contest? Yes, there is. No, no. The question is, did you care? Did I? <laughs> Each year, Syntas uh, Corporation selects one public restroom uh, to receive the award. And guess who's the winner of the 2023 America's Best Restroom Registered Trademark Contest? It's the Baltimore-Washington International Thurgood Marshall Airport. BWI has, uh, has won this award. They've spent a lot of money upgrading the restrooms. Um, this is the—was uh, this the Concourse B, I think— uh, restroom that that they have recently uh, upgraded. Uh, but there's actually a uh, America's Best Restroom Hall of Fame. So, of course, I had to see, well, was this, uh, uh, was this airport winner a, a one-off kind of a thing? Have airports won this in the past? And the answer is yes. In fact, last year, 2022, the award went to Tampa International Airport. Um, and then if you go deeper into the into the past and the <laughs> America's Best Restroom Hall of Fame, in 2021, it was Two Cities Pizza in Cincinnati, Ohio. I wonder how they found that one. You know, this reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. Did you guys watch Seinfeld? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember George Costanza could absolutely tell you any place in Manhattan and New York City where the best and cleanest and easiest restroom was? Yeah, I mean, it just sort of reminds me of that for some reason or other. Well, in, in 20, you have to go back to 2016 to find the, the next most recent airport that won this award, and that was the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. And then if you go back deeper into the Hall of Fame list, you have to go all the way back to 2005 to the Fort Smith Regional Airport. Where is that? That's in Arkansas. But, okay, let's be honest. 
Is it not the first place you go when you get off the airplane? Yes, 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 it is. I mean, or 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 the last place you go before you get on the airplane? I mean, I don't know about you, but being 6'3 and the size I am, I try to avoid going on the airplane because I don't fit in those laboratories oh, anymore. Totally true. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a joke trying to fit into some of those laboratories. But I will say this, if I were flying, say, to uh, to Dulles, kind of to the D.C. area, I don't think I would change my ticket to BWI just because they have the best bathrooms. <laughs> No, that's true. But, you know, there's a picture of this BWI bathroom in the article that we're looking at. And uh, that was uh, from NPR. And I'm looking at it. And, you know, I would be proud to be able to go in there and use it. I would, it. too. It looks like the restroom in a five-star hotel or something. You know, it's, it's really good. But it, at least it, it means that airports are actually thinking about this. Yes. There's something to be said about, you know, cleanliness next to godliness. But you know what? Thinking that it, it is... For every other major city, including Philadelphia, um, and it's probably the first place you visit when you arrive at the airport. I agree. So, um, and that will set the tone for the rest of your visit in that whatever that city is. So when we're ready to segue to the next segment, please please let me do that. But go ahead, continue. I, 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 I just want to say that the next time that we finally get Rick Cotton on the show, to talk, the, the executive director of the New York, New Jersey Port Authority, we need to ask him when the New York or New Jersey Port Authority uh, airports are going to win this fabulous award. And and before we transition to the next story, well, we can we can let all of our uh, listeners know that if they do visit the restrooms at the oh that that uh, New York airport, and you want to nominate the airport for the 2024 awards, well, you can do that. You can go to guess what, bestrestroom.com slash nominate. And one last thing is that, speaking of using the restroom on an aircraft, whenever I try to, if I have to use a lavatory, I always try to take a picture of myself in the mirror because I want to be a laviator. <laughs> okay. All right, Max Trescott, see if you can navigate us <laughs> to All the right, next Here story. we go. Moving on. <laughs> That's funny. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. Everybody, okay. This is from General Aviation News. Delta Hawk launches hydrogen engine development program. Delta Hawk engines, uh, they, they've completed some advanced simulation analysis of a hydrogen fuel engine for GA aircraft. Now, this is a variant of an engine that was uh, recently certified uh, by the FAA. That was the 180-horsepower DHK-180. It's a two-stroke piston engine certified in May 2023. And that was a clean sheet of... Uh, yeah, clean sheet of engine. That was a clean sheet engine. It has an inverted V engine block, uh, a turbocharger and supercharger, mechanical fuel injection, and liquid cooling. And so this is a hydrogen variant of that engine. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, we see hydrogen fuel cells uh, being proposed or developed. And uh, I don't, I don't know that we often see an hydrogen powered internal combustion engine. So this one's a little bit, uh, a little bit different. I'm curious, you know, when you have an internal combustion engine, the horsepower and the output and the torque is all based on octane. So I'm wondering what happens to the horsepower when you develop an engine like this to run on hydrogen as opposed to something that I believe would be higher octane and more a more powerful fuel that would be gasoline or low lead. Mm. I don't know, yeah, the comparison between gas and hydrogen, gasoline or aviation fuel and hydrogen in an internal combustion engine. Um, the Delta Hawk does make some comments about how hydrogen in an internal combustion engine compares to a hydrogen fuel cell. They, they note that the, the in, internal combustion engine, or ICE, uh, is less expensive. Uh, it has a higher tolerance for impurities in the hydrogen. Um, they also point out that uh, internal combustion engines 
uh, are a known quantity, right? We know how to manufacture them. There's manufacturing knowledge out there. There's extensive service networks. And they also point out, and this was kind of different to me because I'm really unaware of this, is that uh, they say that there is a uh, reduced power degradation curve over time that fuel cells exhibit and that when hydrogen is used in an internal combustion engine, there is less of a power degradation over time, which results in better fuel economy than fuel cells after an initial period. So that's kind of interesting. This is another one of those articles where the comments are, are kind of they're kind of all over the map. Um, a lot of them seem to be uninformed, many of them with more emotional content than support by data. Uh, but if you're interested in, you know, feeding the trolls, this would be a good place to go because you could you could drop some stuff into this <laughs> comment thread and torque off all kinds of people if that's what you wanted to do. But there were a lot of negative comments about the idea here. I kind of wonder how much power uh, this thing is going to develop and just, um, you know, how do you store hydrogen on a general aviation aircraft? I mean, like, do you have big tanks up in the wings where the avgas would normally go, or how do you do that? That's right, and because I think the tanks, you know, for for the same amount of energy, I believe if you're if you're dealing with compressed hydrogen tanks as opposed to liquid hydrogen tanks, which I don't think we're going to see on GA aircraft, but if it's compressed hydrogen, I think the volume uh, for the same amount of energy uh, is much uh, higher than with avgas. You need bigger tanks than you do with avgas. I'm pretty sure. And one of the troubles with hydrogen is that it's so light that it escapes from everything. It's very, very difficult to contain, even in compressed bottle gases. It just leaks all over the place. Yeah, molecules are so small that they find their way through uh, through everything, basically. Um, yeah, and I was thinking, uh, typically for a high-pressure tank, you're going to want something that's cylindrical in shape, and that does not describe the shape of most airplane wings. So it's almost as if you need to put this in the back in the baggage compartment or you know, somehow incorporate it into the fuselage because I, I just wouldn't think that a large cylindrical tank would, would fit into you know, conventional uh, wings. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is – this is my personal opinion. I think this is an example of you know one of the techno- one of many technologies that are being looked at, uh, where the the prospect maybe is ultimately encouraging, but there's a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done uh, before it becomes practical, affordable, efficient. You know, all of those things. Where you know we're we're, we're kind of taking uh, maybe a Ford Model T. And trying to compare it to a uh, you know a, a contemporary Mercedes Benz, and it, it's you know it, it's not going to stack up at this point. Will it ever surpass the Mercedes? You know, in that analogy, if that works, we don't know. But I guess you got to try, right? Yep. Well, I think that's the thing with new technology. People are placing all kinds of bets and not all of them are going to pay off and some of them will. But the problem is at this early stage, it's hard to know. Is this one of the ones that's going to, you know, make it to uh, be commercialized and be successful or will just kind of drop along the wayside? Exactly. All right. Our, our next um, item, it's about a specific airport and having a, it's having a specific issue, but it's kind of illustrating what small airports can can be presented with, the challenges that they can face. Uh, and this is about uh, Lewiston-Auburn Airport, uh, Municipal Airport in Maine. And they're trying to get kind of on a, on a solid financial footing, but they've got a lot of uh, challenges going on. One is uh, Elite Airways uh, was operating there, but they, they ceased operations last year in, in 2022, um, abandoning three leased Bombardier CRJ-700 airplanes at the airport. They left a bunch of tools and trailers and machinery, some other property, it, pff, just left it. One of the CRJ was flown out by an asset management company. They had to get a special flight permit from the FAA. Two others were, at least for a time, in this uh, in this hangar, in this 27,000 square foot hangar, hangar number five. And 
that was abandoned also because uh, it was originally built in 2008 for the Lufthansa Lockheed Starliner project. I don't know if you remember talking about that Starliner. Well, Lufthansa built this or had this built or this 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 hangar was built uh, for the restoration of a Lockheed L-1649A Starliner. Lufthansa wanted to restore this to flight-worthy status. And they spent a lot of money on this on this project, and it was almost finished. But then in 2018, the the project was was canceled. Um, they shipped the the uh, the the Lockheed the Starliner to Germany. Uh, if you follow it, it's bounced around a couple of places in in Germany. I don't I don't know what they're going to do with it now. Uh, Lufthansa celebrates its hundredth birthday in 2026, so I don't know if their their plan is is for this constellation to be part of that that part of that celebration or not but in any event that left the uh, the hangar the folks from elite airways moved in but they went bust and they're stuck with the uh, with the hangar it, it has to be heated uh, in order to preserve the integrity the integrity of the uh, of the hangar it's got a wet foam fire suppression system and so the you know the poor uh, municipal airport is spending six or seven thousand dollars a month in the winter months just to heat this thing so uh it's kind of a challenge uh micah we know this airport pretty well you know it better than better than i do and um they're you know they're they're kind of saddled with this expense this hangar and they're looking to well sell it if someone wants to buy it or if someone wants to to lease it out yeah, it's a very small airport. Um, we know it because we were up there. That's where the uh, the last time that we visited with nine oh nine and uh, and and Mac uh, when we saw the Collings Foundation uh, aircraft up there with the P forty and the P fifty one. But it's just a tiny little airport. It's got a nice runway, uh, and in fact, that's where uh, President Biden flew in in the uh, in the seven fifty seven a few weeks ago. But um, but they've been having trouble when Elite went bust. Uh, they're having trouble with the hangar, and uh, and they they sold off everything that they can from it. They're trying to keep the airport flowing, and and, and but they just there's nothing going on up there other than it being a small GA airport. And they've improved sales uh, in terms of Avgas, etc., and so on. But uh, this has saddled them with a huge debt, and uh, they're trying to sell it off. And are we on commission here if we find uh, someone to take over the lease? Do we get a nice good share of this? Because I'm thinking this is probably perfect for one of the 200 EV tall companies, which is out there, you know, needing space and a place to, uh, you know, to build their stuff and fly it and test it. I'm sure they could get a great deal. But frankly, most of those places, and there's a lot of them, went to the old Brunswick Naval Air Station, which is now Brunswick Landing, that has an even longer runway and is closer to the coast in terms of test flying. Well, good news is for an eVTOL, you don't need that long a runway. Yes. <laughs> All right. Oh, one last uh, one last news item, and I guess this is good news. This is also from General Aviation News, and uh, Max Trescott, they uh, report some uh, some good numbers for the third quarter. Indeed, things are up and to the right. It's always nice when the the graph is moving up and to the right, and that's uh, general aviation aircraft deliveries. Now, it's really interesting when you you break up uh, the GA different segments. You know, the piston airplanes, the the turboprops, the business jets, and typically what you see is there, there's they don't all move together. And there was a long period of time over the last twenty years where you know jets and turboprops were doing great, and GA was kind of eh, you know. Barely, barely moving along, and as the economy changes, you know these things always change. But anyway, they've released data for the uh, third quarter through 2023, and this comes from Gamma, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. And one of the things they do is put out reports quarterly on this kind of information. But for the first three quarters of this year, compared to last year, piston sales are up almost 12%, which is pretty darn good. Turboprops up uh, 14.5%, again, pretty good. Business jets just up 2%. So I think they had a you know pretty good run-up for a while. And obviously, uh, as the economy changes, people are you know, less likely to, to buy the really expensive stuff. But uh, anyway, overall, um, total billings for three quarters 
of this year, $14.5 billion. So it just kind of gives you an idea of how big the industry is for general aviation aircraft. And that's actually just the airplane side. The rotorcraft side is uh, $2.7 billion for the first uh, three quarters. And their uh, pistons are up by 15%. And I know that's dominated by Robinson, which means they are having a really excellent year. Turbines up by about 6% and all rotorcraft uh, up by about 8.5%. So things appear to be up on the right for general aviation. There was um, a really good um, you know, boom, if you will, during the pandemic. A lot of people during the pandemic uh, decided, hey, I want to learn to fly and I want to buy an airplane because I'm not sure I want to be on these airliners. Uh, and of course, also flight training has been up substantially. Uh, and so there are a lot of purchases. If I just saw one the other day, can't remember which um, you know flight training company bought forty eight Skyhawks. Now that's just a that's a ton of airplanes to be purchased at one time. So all in all, GA is doing well. Hmm. Now Gamma reports, I think, um, two uh, two different statistics: deliveries and billings. And I don't know how they how they line up because when you look at the airplanes, uh, the airplane statistics in total. Piston turboprops and business jets. Total airplanes are up ten percent, just over ten percent, but total billings are up two point five percent. So is that just like a, a a mismatch of the timing of the billings versus deliveries, or does it suggest that there are lesser priced aircraft being delivered because the billings isn't up as much? Do you know. Good question. I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and you're right. Um, you, you look at orders and you look at deliveries and orders is kind of what came in, you know, what order came in yesterday and deliveries is the stuff for orders that came in a year ago that you're now finally delivering. And, you know, those those numbers often have different trends. Yes. Yeah. So as we mentioned uh, at the top of the show, Brian caught up with Michael Rogers and his daughter, Ava, who he had talked to some years ago, uh, maybe like four years ago. And Michael has uh, transitioned from a Cirrus to a Diamond DA-62, which is a twin. And uh, his uh, younger daughter, or his young daughter, Ava, uh, who at age 10 thought that she really wanted to become a military pilot, now at age 14, still wants to do that, although maybe with a different service than uh, than she had originally envisioned. So uh, we have uh, Brian's interviews with them. They're not hugely long, so we'll play those now. First, uh, Michael and Brian, and then we'll follow that up with Brian's conversation with Ava. I'm here with Michael Rogers and wanted to talk about the transition and the purchase of your new aircraft and selling of your Cirrus. All right. Good to be with you, Brian. Yeah. And I know Max is going to be upset that you've left the Cirrus family, but. Oh, yes. Yeah, Sorry, so, Max. So what inspired you to get the DA Diamond over the Cirrus? How did your life and mission change? Well, uh, with two kids that started off, uh, I don't know, five and seven or something. And now they're uh, 12 and 14. They're getting a little bigger. They like to take more luggage. The Cirrus that I had was uh, an older one that was only 3,400 pounds. And I was finding that I was taking less and less fuel and more and more fuel stops. And uh, it was time for something a little bigger. Did the twin engines have anything to do with the decision as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the engines on the DA-62 are really new tech. Um, they're run on jet fuel, not on avgas. So that was very appealing. They also collectively, both engines burn about the same in cruise as the Cirrus did. Uh, so that was fun. Jet fuel's a little cheaper. Um, mostly. So I actually net out about the same in operating costs. And, uh, you know, the extra payload uh, is fantastic. Yeah, except when it comes time for maintenance, you now have two oh. engines to take care of instead of just one. That's the rub, definitely. That That is the downside. And, you know, the, the parachute, the uh, Cirrus caps, was really appealing for the initial purchase of, of, of that aircraft. The second engine uh, definitely offsets that a little bit 
not really sure which one's best at the moment. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Well, hopefully you'll <laughs> never have to find out. Hopefully I never will. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, we were talking earlier, and let the listeners know the purchase experience. You had to go to Canada to take delivery of the aircraft, right? I did, yes. That was really fun. Diamond make uh, airplanes in Austria and Canada. I initially wanted an uh, Austrian serial number, but the wait was just too long. Took delivery of a uh, brand new airplane from Canada in London, Ontario. Flew there, uh, met up with my... Uh, ferry pilot, delivery pilot, saw the airplane for the first time, and it was just an amazing experience to see a, a brand new airplane off the line. Then we embarked on the journey of flying all the way across country. That was really cool. And how long did it take you? Um, let's see, it took about 10 hours, I think. We stayed uh, overnight somewhere just to break up the uh, the journey. It was a very, very pleasant trip. I chose to take a delivery pilot because I didn't have enough experience to meet uh, insurance requirements. Mm -hmm. You know, like the airlines do, they have their IOE, their initial operating experience, just seemed to uh, to be a safe thing to do. Can you look at it, though, as that you got 10 hours of additional training in the oh, aircraft? I mean, did, you, did you train along the way or... Did he do the flying? Did he allow you to fly? How did that work? Yeah, I, I did all the flying, and uh, he's a CFII, so I picked up an IPC along the way. So we did uh, all the instrument recurrency stuff. I, I, I'm always instrument current, but nothing like uh, you know doing an IPC in a new airplane. So I did that and um, met the insurance requirements. We did every maneuver that I did for the multi-engine check ride over multiple times. A lot of uh, single engine work, single engine approaches, etc. And then when we landed at Camarillo, my home base, we took a day off. And mm. then uh, the following day did another, oh, I think it was four hours training, okay. uh, doing the same thing this time just out over the bay doing uh, steep turns and stalls and everything so that uh, I got very comfortable with the airplane. Yeah, nice. How was the transition going from the Cirrus to the DA Diamond? Yeah, it's uh, it's different. <laughs> Having two uh, engines is, is definitely very different um, and managing those. Fortunately, the DA62 is super high tech. Um, it, uh, it, it, it's only a single lever control, uh, as opposed to most other light twins of that category that have mixture, uh, propeller and, uh, throttle. This is just a single lever to control all that. So, um, that was easier, but still, you know, two engine management is, uh, is definitely a challenge. Yeah, when we went flying yesterday, it was fun watching you do the pre-flight. And the automation and the tech just seemed really amazing to me. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm, you know, a techie guy, so uh, I really like all that. You know, running up the airplane is as simple as uh, pulling the throttles to idle and just pressing the run-up buttons. The computers do the rest. It cycles it all the way up to, uh, I think it's about... 1700 rpm and then uh, cycles the propellers brings it all back to uh, checks the electronic control units uh, there's two for each engine and uh, at the end of it you're ready to fly yeah those that those really neat unfortunately yesterday we had a bit of weather condition and i got to <laughs> yes. experience pretty long flight in clouds the entire time and really this is the first time where i was flying ga where i was in the clouds and i can so understand now how pilots can become disoriented. Definitely, yeah. It's uh, It takes a lot of discipline to really look at those instruments and ignore what your your head is telling you. Yeah, and trust the instruments as and well. And trust, yes, absolutely. Right, and when we came back into Camarillo, we did a bit of a orbit. I truly had no idea where we were mm. without looking at the instruments. Definitely. Right, it's just, we could have been anywhere, could have been sideways and absolutely had i had no idea yeah we had a faster airplane a phenom i think it was that was coming up behind us so the uh, air traffic controller um spun us one lap and um it was over four different vectors i think she uh pointed us in four different directions to do that 
essentially 360 turn. degree turn. So it can be very disorientating if you're uh, if you're not paying attention. Yeah. Is there any feature on the DA Diamond that it doesn't have that you wish it did? The Cirrus Perspective uh, software for the G1000, I think, is superior to the Diamond at this juncture. Um, Diamond R uh, going through a series of upgrades, but um, the Cirrus uh, has some really cool features, um, one of which is a, a visual approach that um, you can essentially set up to any airport that perhaps doesn't have an instrument approach. So that's uh, a feature that I'd be looking forward to. And there's a few other features that they have there. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but their technology to tell you the status of the airplane, even when it's uh, on the ground. So the software needs to be certified by the aircraft type, as opposed to just Garmin putting out version 3.0. They have to certify for each aircraft and then release it that way? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. There are a plethora of features um, that Garmin have that would be lovely to turn on uh, in the DA62 and others, but um, they're just not certified by um, the Canadian authority, or in the case of Cirrus, the U.S. Uh, FAA. It's just a case of um, the manufacturer going through and certifying all of those features. Right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I guess we now have some content for Max to talk about the differences <laughs> in getting software certified on the different aircraft. But Max, I have weather radar on uh, the DA-62, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to that. Um, the Garmin uh, GWX-75, I was the first aircraft, actually, to get that installed uh, and certified um, uh, at the delivery. Uh, so that's fun. Yeah, and for those that might be interested, we took a flight from Camarillo out to Victorville and saw an awful lot of parked aircraft. <laughs> we sure did. <clears throat> and I think uh, I've sent in some pictures to uh, the geeks over the years showing the various numbers of parked airplanes, and uh, it hasn't decreased. No, not at all. And uh, I was surprised. I didn't realize that there was a maintenance space out there. And there were oh, several aircraft huge. that were in for maintenance, various stages of maintenance as well. And that was that was really fun to see. So thank you so much for, for taking me out there. That was great. Yeah, lots of, uh, of C&D checks you know, for uh, airliners. We, uh, we saw an airliner just come out of a uh, paint shop. Yeah, the Etihad plane. That's right. Yeah, and they were running the engines. Um, and uh, I think the lady said they were delivering in the next week or so. So it's a pretty cool place to visit if you're looking for a you know, $300 hamburger. Uh, it's a good place to go. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time and definitely appreciate going flying yesterday. Fantastic. Thanks, Brian. Great to see you. I'm here with Michael Rogers. I'm here with Michael Rogers. Yeah. See, this is great stuff for bloopers. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Why can't I say your last name? I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Max, do you have any twin experience? Oh, sure. Yeah, and a lot of it in the uh, the diamond as well. And uh, first off, I should say, hello, Michael. <laughs> we haven't talked in quite some time, but uh, we have talked in the past. And no, I hadn't realized that he had uh, moved over to, uh, to diamond, but if he needs... Uh, more space and weight than makes sense to move to the 62. I've done a lot of um, teaching in the DA42, which has got slightly smaller engines, a little slower, uh, but very, very similar in almost all regards to the uh, the DA62 that uh, that Michael has. Oh, and then uh, he was uh, talking about the uh, the software. Garmin offers uh, many features on their different platforms. So this is essentially the, the G1000 platform. And the manufacturers, the, the OEMs like Diamond and Cirrus and Cessna, they really choose pretty much from a menu. It's kind of a la carte. You know, do, do you want this feature or that feature or whatever? And, you know, the more you buy, the more expensive it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Cirrus tends to be the leader in terms of getting all the new features, you know, sooner than virtually anybody else. 
and most of the other manufacturers lag a little bit behind and often don't choose all of those uh, features. And so that's why you see differences. Um, you know, you might think, oh, there's the G1000 as I hop into the Cessna, but guess what? It's going to be different than the one on the Diamond, different from the one in the Cirrus and, and so on. So that's that's why, for example, the, the visual approach feature he mentioned that's been available in Cirrus for, oof, I would say, six years now is not available in the uh, in the Diamonds. Max, I wanted to ask you, they, uh, he mentioned that it runs on Jet A, uh, meaning which is kerosene or diesel fuel, meaning that the engines, that's a propeller aircraft, uh, they're diesels as opposed to gas engines. As, as a pilot, what kind of differences do you need to be aware of when you're actually flying a, a internal combustion engine that's, that's a diesel engine versus one that runs on avgas? Yeah, the, the biggest gotcha is misfueling. There have been a number of cases where Diamond DA-42s and 62s have been misfueled because the airplane looks very much like an airplane that you would expect to use avgas. And so, unfortunately, uh, a number of fuelers have uh, you know put the wrong fuel in there, and there have been cases of... Uh, you know, these aircraft uh, taking off and, you know, <laughs> the engine stopping. Usually when that happens, it's, you know, it's it's like three, four minutes into the flight. It's it's pretty quick. There have also been cases where they've uh, identified that before it took off, and then they have to spend a lot of time draining the tanks and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, just multiple passes of fuel through them to make sure that they've cleaned everything out. Uh, from an operational standpoint, uh, you know, once you're in the airplane, you really have no idea whether you're, you know, using Jet A or or Avgas. Um, but the the biggest differences with these engines is something that uh, they talked about, which is that uh, they do have um, engine control units, so FADEC, full authority digital engine control units, which is very rare in uh, you know uh, piston you know, GA aircraft to have these kinds of um, units. The uh, the, the upside is it makes starting the engine a dream. There is no hot start. There is no flooded start. There's no cold start. I mean, frankly, there are many times we as pilots are somewhat embarrassed because we can't get the darn engine to start. And with with the engines and the Diamond DA-40, well, actually the DA-40NG, the DA-42, and the DA-62, I have never seen or heard of that happening. You turn the key and it just starts. It's smooth as a kitten. Uh, so I really love that uh, aspect of it. Uh, he mentioned single lever. Actually, there are two levers he was talking about per engine. So there is one throttle for each of the two engines. So he's got two levers. Whereas in a conventional piston twin, you'd have six levers, uh, which is just a royal royal pain to have to manage it. So the uh, the engine management is just so easy by comparison with a conventional uh, you know piston twin engine aircraft. All right, let's uh, let's listen to Brian and uh, Eva real quick, and uh, maybe David will have some advice for her afterwards. I'm doing an update with a guest we had on the show four years ago, and I would like to reintroduce you to Ava Rogers. Ava, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Hi, glad to be here. Now, for longtime listeners, they will remember four years ago, I was at Chino, California at the Plains of Fame, and I interviewed Ava, and she talked about being a naval aviator. So, Ava, you still want to be a naval aviator, or has the Air Force won your heart over? <laughs> well, I feel like I'm open to either now. I was very, I'm going to be a Navy pilot before, but the Air Force is interesting, too. I feel like the idea of being on land is appealing. <laughs> So landing on the carrier isn't doesn't hold the same appeal that it used to. It does, but the Air Force also holds appeal. Okay. Yeah. And now you're getting to the age where you can start your pilot's license. You looking forward to that? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it will be so cool, especially just flying with my dad. I love kind of practicing and getting a feel for what it will be like. So he lets you take control? Sometimes, yes. Okay, good. Yeah, and your dad, Michael Rogers, he recently purchased a new aircraft. What do you think of the new Diamond that you have? The DA-62 is really cool. I love all the features. It's very different than the Cirrus, and I've only flown in it once, so I'm excited to go on more adventures. Oh, really? Since I went flying with your dad yesterday, we now have the same amount of time in the aircraft. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. We'll have to fix that. Yes, indeed. 
I need to get up here more often and go flying with your dad and have more hours than you. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's the way I'm playing that game. So what's really inspired you about aviation? Well, I've gone to Oshkosh for the last three years, which has always been a burst of inspiration for the that kind of carries me through the whole year. But this year I participated in Girl Venture, which is a program within Oshkosh for girls who want mentors or support in aviation and it was amazing because I really gained a lot of inspiration by being with people who share similar interests. Mm -hmm. I feel like I find it sometimes hard to find girls interested or women in the aviation industry around me. And being in that environment was really inspiring. And were there men that were participating in that as well as instructors or mentors or was it really all women? It was really all women. Some men, military pilots came but mostly the women, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's really important to have women in aviation inspire younger women and get them involved. So that's a really neat program. Yes, it was awesome. And you're going to go back next year? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Dad, what do you say about that? Absolutely. <laughs> so now that you're flying around in the Diamond, and there's a little bit more room than the Cirrus, and I've heard that you went on a flight with your grandmother. How was that having your grandmother sit with you on the flight? That was fun. It was it was a little bit crammed because with three people instead of two, it's definitely a difference. But it's fun to include more people into this awesome experience we get to have. And where did you fly to? We flew to Las Vegas for oh. my sister's birthday. Very cool. Yes. Yeah, so you flew into Henderson Field? Yes, and then we drove into the Strip. Yeah, nice. So anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Well, I would strongly encourage any girls to go to Oshkosh if they're looking for inspiration, and especially Girl Venture, because it was really an amazing experience for me. So I guess, yeah, I would encourage girls to look into that. Eva, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You know, it sounds like that diamond is a real gem. <laughs> Very good. So, so David, if you were um, starting all over and you had the, um, the ability to uh, go with a, a naval aviation career or an Air Force career, which direction would you go? I'm sure it's different for everybody, but what would you do? Well, if I, if I go back till I was 17 and, and enlisted, I enlisted in the Air Force. And the reason why I enlisted in the Air Force was because um, I was going to be a loadmaster on C-130s. Now, um, much to my father's chagrin that I wasn't joining the Navy, um, even though he was I, – I actually, it was funny. We, we brought this up because it came up over the weekend that we were talking about service loyalty. And while my father was – worked for the Air Force for – seven or eight times longer than um, he was in the Navy. He always was a sailor first. And he worked for the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy at one point. He was always a sailor first. So I, I was kind of disappointed in him by wanting him to be Air Force. But, you know, one of the things she said was she kind of wants to play on land. land. And not all of naval aviation is carrier-based. There's a lot of aspects. Um, they do fly things like C-130s and C-9s. And there's always also the complete – you can always go into rotorcraft too. So it, you, you definitely have more opportunities as a pilot in the Air Force. But in the Navy, there's as much flying support as there is flying fighter jets off of aircraft carriers. You know, It all depends upon what you want to do and – a lot of times, I don't think what people don't realize is sometimes you don't really have a choice. Right. You come out of flight school and they need a bunch of fighter pilots, you're probably going to flight fighter school. If they suddenly need a bunch of transport pilots and they only have a couple slots for f fighters, you're probably going to transports. And the decision is kind of made for you. I don't think there's a lot of there's a lot of people who have 
dreamt about flying fighters and you know sometimes it doesn't come up that way it depends upon what the needs of the services are they right and and keep in mind that there are two other services or three other services that you can still fly in which is the army the marines which of course that means you're going to naval flight school but the marines and there's a lot of aviation assets in the united states coast guard right and and then of course then there's other things like the forestry service and you know there's if you want to go into a role of being a pilot there's a lot of ways you can do it and not necessarily going and, and it always sounds like you're going to go to the academy then go to flight school but you can go start in an ROTC go to college get your degree and then go to flight school you know i mean just and if you don't want to be an officer, join the army because <laughs> they will allow you to fly without being an officer. Right. Okay. You know, and you mentioned the uh, a lot of the naval aircraft that are ground based, and uh, the P eight is one of those. But apparently, we found out they have an affinity for water as well. Yeah, that's not a good. That's not a good topic. Oh, we'll have to learn more about that another time, though. Yep. Well, I'm excited to see what Ava does next. So I hope uh, I hope we uh, stay connected to her this way and uh, and can follow along. Okay, what's up with the geeks? Uh, let's see, uh, Micah, how about you? Well, um, Brian is finally back from his Thanksgiving getaway, and we're hoping that uh, we're going to record our uh, Journey is Reward episode about uh, our trip to Tampa together, and hoping to do that this week. Don't have a date set yet, but uh, looking forward to, to talking about that and letting our listeners know just how much fun it was. Good. And Rob wanted us to mention our little uh, giveaway based on a random drawing of people who sent us an email, tell us what their favorite aviation movie is, as long as it's not Top Gun. And we've actually received quite a number of entries so far after just one week. And interestingly enough, uh, basically every one of them is different. So A, there's a lot of aviation uh, movies out there. And B, everyone's got a different idea of uh, what the best one is, at least so far. So uh, if you'd like to participate, we're going to do a random drawing and uh, we'll offer a $50 gift card to the winner of that drawing. In order to enter, just send us an email, right? The geeks at airplanegeeks.com. Remember to put the word movie somewhere in the subject line. That makes it easier for us. And uh, let us know what your, uh, what your favorite aviation movie is, as long as it's not Top Gun. And we'll pick one. We'll also, uh, we get a lot of stories with some of these uh, submissions as well. A lot of people are explaining why that particular movie is uh, is important to them or why it's their favorite. So that's, that's going to be fun to look through uh, when we get all of the uh, entries together. And uh, send it to us before the end of the year. We'll, we'll close the contest December 31st, 2023. No purchase necessary and void in a state where it's not possible. That's right. In listener mail, we received a, a nice email from Alan. He uh, said he was listening to a recent episode of Air Traffic Out of Control, that podcast. And the pilot there uh, had a horse get loose in, in the cargo uh, bay after takeoff and had to dump 20 tons of fuel over the ocean near Martha's Vineyard in order to turn around and land safely. So he writes, if uh, I'm doing the math correctly, that would be around 25,000 liters of gas. Even if I am off on that math calculation some, I doubt any of us would like to have 20 tons of jet fuel dropped over where they lived. He said, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years. Don't recall this topic being discussed. Perhaps I missed the time spent on this issue. The topic I hear about more often, he says, is the impact of uh, simply flying the planes. It seems dumping the gas and not at least getting all those people where they were hoping to go is a worse outcome when it looked at uh, when looked at in isolation of a single flight. He says, I assume that in comparison with the total jet fuel burned annually, these instances. These instances account for a very tiny percent of the total, so are easy to overlook or accept. 
with more and more awareness of environmental impacts on the way humans are living, he says, I am wondering how fuel dumping is accounted for or tracked by airlines. Seems it is simply acceptable to dump and consider it to be a regular reality we have to deal with. Is there any sense for how much fuel is dumped annually around the world? This recent example took off from New York and dumped over the ocean. What happens with a large plane leaving, say, Colorado who has to dump over the ground? Does the gas evaporate and disperse enough over miles to not be as bad as it sounds? So a, a couple of things. We talked about this, oh, some years ago. It's been quite a while. And uh, my recollection is you know, we believe that at any altitude, any significant altitude, the the fuel disperses in the atmosphere, so it doesn't rain down on someone or the you know or the ground. But uh, we also um, found some interesting information. There, there's one estimate that comes through British Airways, and it, it suggests that only 0.01 percent of the fuel used by the aviation industry. Each year is jettisoned, one one hundredth of a percent. So that's pretty small. Well, another source says that the U.S. Air Force jettisoned nearly 1,000 times per year in the past and that commercial airlines reported 485 instances of fuel jettison over a five-year period. Um, the source says, however, that, you know, these figures may not be current. They may not be accurate, uh, pointing out that Okay, dumping fuel is rare, and it's unregulated. So there's no, I guess there's no official collection uh, mechanism. But if those numbers are right, the Air Force dumping fuel a thousand times a year, and uh, commercial airlines four eighty five over five years. So call that, you know, call that a hundred times a year with that frequency. Yeah, I did a little research on it as well, and you know. Uh, Fuel dumping is always coordinated with ATC, and they always try to work out specific separations so that the fuel that's being dumped isn't going to be ingested by another aircraft. That would be important, wouldn't it? Yep. (laughs) It's got to be done at a high enough altitude, a minimum of 6,000 feet AGL, so that it does dissipate uh, before it hits the ground. And uh, and it typically does, although there have been times when it hasn't. Uh, If you go back to, uh, I think it was back in 2020, it was uh, Delta Airlines, uh, Flight 89 was taking off over LA and dumped 10,000 gallons of fuel at an altitude that was too low, and uh, there were some injuries, uh, including some school kids, because uh, I don't know what the mistake was, but it it certainly happened. But, But it's a fast process. Uh, the fuel dump rate is pretty quick. The, the, the rule of thumb for like a 747 is one to two tons a minute. And uh, wow. the, the record that we know is uh, Airbus uh, A340-300 uh, dumped 53 tons in 11 minutes at one time. Jeez. Pretty fast. That's amazing. Yeah, interesting. So if you really want to dig deep into this, uh, we've got some, some references, some articles and things that talk about this topic, and they'll, they'll, of course, be in the show notes. All right. We want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank Michael and Ava Rogers, uh, and for Brian for getting connected with them again and uh, recording those conversations. You can find us, as always, at airplanegeeks.com. Show notes for this episode are at airplanegeeks.com slash 776 if you want to just go straight to them. And again, our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, David Vanderhoof, where do we find you? Uh, You can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Um, I will post... Next week, I will post our upcoming year. We've already started planning 2024. My biggest project will be rotors and ro- rockets and rotors, which will be the history of NASA's helicopters and a celebration, believe it or not, of the 55th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. Hmm. It's hard to believe that that's come along so quickly. So, um, but And, of course, if you can spell Vanderhoof, you can find me and on the various social media platforms. All right. In Max Trescott. 
Oh, the usual place you might find me at the Palo Alto Airport where I'm teaching. <laughs> in fact, anybody, if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area sometime and you want to go fly, give me a holler. We can certainly uh, schedule that. Um, but check out Aviation News Talk podcast, and that's at AviationNewsTalk.com. Cool. And Micah, how about you? I'm uh, still on, on Twitter, or is it? Twixter or is it Zitter or whatever it is, uh, I'm there as Maine Fly. That's M-A-I-N-E, like the state of Maine. Fly, F-L-Y. And you can also find me with uh, Brian Coleman on the Journey is a Reward podcast. Terrific. And I'm Max Flight. You can find me on Mastodon and, and a few other places online as well. All right. Please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening.